Pink Midnight. Pink Midnight. Pink Midnight. her friend Yuki, who thinks she's bleeding, but has had her period as she runs through the swamps and the dogs chase her and her blood. The female prisoners wear these almost tie-dye-like dresses. They're surrounded by dogs, surrounded by men with guns. They decide to maybe eat a dog for lunch, but then realize they're in too much of a hurry, so they run through the reeds, they run through the waters, their dresses are torn, their hair is unkempt, black as a night. This is female prisoner number 701, Scorpion. Very dramatic, intense music, very uh, feral energy running throughout this film. I've seen it a few times, and... It's almost like a lightning bolt of rebelliousness, and it really will stick with you. The lyrics to the opening song, After She's Caught, are about being thrown away by a man, being used by a man, and then seeking vengeance. It's a strange film that both feels like an exploitation film and a feminist film. I mean, you have uh, a woman visibly getting her period within the first, you know, 10 seconds of the film. And after they're recaptured, you have this long line of female prisoners, completely nude, kind of walking through uh, a prison yard, looking kind of grim and miserable, almost corpse-like in the way that it's lit. You cling to a world of dreams. They scorn you with lies. More lyrics from the opening song. 
then you literally have the male gaze underneath these female prisoners walking up this plank-like instrument, this series of scaffolding or stairs, which one would think would be leading to some kind of execution, but in reality just seems some pointless, perverse exercise. Yet there's a certain glaring quality, as I said before, to the way that it's lit, and it even zooms in rather harshly on the male himself, who looks rather buffoonish. But really, in the end, can't a female gaze be just as poisonous as a male gaze? A beautiful cacophony of drums played on plates, prison instruments, the useless tools for a disgusting and savage meal of rat tails and rat breath and maybe discarded snails. Vats of soup are overturned and poured down sewers and they will go hungry and they will play music on their plates with their chopsticks. We'll eat imaginary food and live imaginary lives and love imaginary loves while in this prison of sticks and stones welded and mushed together from the fabrics of our worst nightmares reapers and clowns. She's hogtied and solitaire where only a little light remains a trickling of water, a river of rats panting at the doors, hungry for their discarded supper. The more alive, the better. If you could only communicate by knocking your head against a wall, a breast exposed, a tear rumbling down your cheek, the trains of the night past your pale and blue flesh, a distant memory, a keen escape. We were sisters, and we only knew how to discover the night by running from it. The torturer's pleasure arrives when a mid-ranking or low-ranking girl on the team, another fellow women prisoner, comes down to give Matsu, the rebellious one, the one whose escape opened the film with a flame, pours a wretched-looking soup upon the floor, and with the torturer's pleasure, suggests she lap it up off the floor like a dog. She feels power, but Matsu is strong, and even Matsu, pinned like a butterfly to a wall, pinned like a slug to a dungeon, will open one scaly eye and never sleep and never know any end to consciousness. During a beautiful scene of memories in which she is unrolled in a blue room within a white sheet. She states that I was a normal woman 
only a year ago, I was dating a narcotics officer. So one wonders, how did she end up on the wrong side of the law? How did she end up so jaded, jaded and cynical and removed from her situation and intimidating and powerful? How did she become prisoner 701? Her narcotics officer husband or boyfriend asked her to take part in a sting operation, but things go wrong. She's on this floor with a, sort of a mirror-like quality to it. They want her to talk, which she refuses to do at first, so they say ominously, if you're not going to talk with your mouth, you're going to talk with your body. But her husband or partner betrays her in a sense, uses her to set up a series of traps, a trick. The memories unfold like a puzzle in a play-like fashion. The sets move on a revolving kind of stage, which is beautifully done. This is a visually stunning film and has a lot of moving set pieces and movement, expressions and movement in general. Yes, Sagumi, the man she loved with all her heart, has deceived her, so she cries a wounded tear which trickles down through her mouth and out with the rest of the lies. It soars away in the harsh glare of a day of no one you can trust whatsoever. Yet he's comforted by his stack of cash, his bad bowl haircut, his cheap trench coat, and his confidence, which will soon erase like the breath of a lunatic. There's a shot from beneath her, looking up through glass. She looks pale, she looks used, she looks estranged from her former lover as he drops cash upon her like this is the end of a union that was never as meaningful to him at all. 701 Scorpion Weird elements of stop motion but only broken frames because it only stops a few times and then the light changes. We're backlit by a garish red. Her hair exploded like as her flesh goes green. Is she a goblin of the unseen? Will she seek a true revenge inspired by a basic but terrible betrayal? Or is this a Betrayal beyond an ordinary sense of peril. 
And as it turns out, broad daylight is kind of her theme. She wanders out, encounters him as he leaves his job, whips a cape into the air, and half-naked stares. She looks beyond the unseen. She looks like one of the undead that forever screams. She doesn't blink. She hangs around graveyards, it's said, because her feelings, they're all so dead. He dances with her butcher knife, but he's in a state of fright. She's unhinged, unwound, and wired desperately for the fight of her life. Will we see the hideousness of the female gaze? Oh no, not to generalize. The male gaze was slaughtered, chewed up, bit up, spit out. And the female gaze, like a bubbling ramification of pus, sort of arched its back and howled with a wail. They sit in the most beautiful prison garden I've ever seen. They miss the outside world. They talk of missing sex. They giggle and the carnations which surround them light their faces with a pleasant and enduring hue. And even their prison outfits, although grim by the standards of this society, are somehow colorful and cheerful. They put flowers in each other's hair. They bathe their lips in the gauze of strawberries. They gaze upon tulips, the greenery of the garden and the stones of the garden and the trickling of the waters in the garden all bring this prisoner's garden to life. She remains in solitaire and gets hot miso soup poured upon her hair, upon her body. Her exposed breast receives all of the rest. And yet, red lips glow in this dungeon where prisoners will have their shows of affection, of betrayal, a drama played out under the gaze of rats, under the clicking of their little claws. And though we're desperate through the bars, there is a dust which never settles. There is a mold which ever grows. And then yes, her mockery is killed. She threatens to pour a little more and the rug is literally ripped from beneath her with 701 scorpion's teeth. She falls screaming covered by the hot miso soup herself, a taste of her own medicine to sizzle upon the torment of her flesh. And having received a painful second-degree burn myself rather recently, I can relate to her screams down the corridor. The beating from the guards which ensues 
echoes and pulsates. And she remains stubbornly closed up. She remains silent because perhaps there's nothing left to beat out of her. And perhaps these beating sounds resemble the dwindling of a beating heart. The patriarchy represented in this film is like a stack of steel cards, a truly endless and dangerous fortress which corruption climbs up like a venomous snake. The venomous snake is welcomed in this steel, in this brittle, in this shimmering gold, money-drenched scheme. But will this house of cards fall? Is there any justice in this patriarchal stack? Can it be toppled over? Can the male gaze be annihilated? Or will the corruption continue to flow and rest its hat upon the emptiness of cruelty? A favorite moment occurs when Matsu prevents one girl from planting a lockpick on another girl. And the other girl is so angry that she starts chasing Matsu. And Matsu slams a glass door right in her face, which causes the glass to break. The girl then picks up a shard of glass. The lighting goes haywire. And it looks as though some sort of demonic entity has possessed her. There's weird bursting alien sounds. The lighting has gone dramatic and unnatural. And she chases her around topless, blood running down her forehead with a giant shard of glass, very maniacally. A guard's eye is inadvertently stabbed. And while remaining surprisingly cool given the circumstances, uh, he continues to bark orders and sends them all to dig holes in the middle of nowhere, sandy holes. And it reminded me of one gentleman I knew who had been to prison and told me a story about how the guards would make them sweep up sunlight and sweep up moonlight. In other words, just continue to sweep the same spot. Complete an impossible task in an impossible situation. In a bleak and unholy world, a blue world filled with steel and porcelain and no bacteria. No nice bacteria, anyway. In response to 
a request by the guy who got Matsu in here. Another inmate says, uh, you're a cop, why? She asked that because his request uh, in order to get her out on parole is to kill Matsu, make it all look like an accident, of course. Sort of like he might have done this before. And it makes sense when she asks, why are you a cop? Why? He just smokes coolly through a chain link fence. He's got no emotion whatsoever. He doesn't even smile, doesn't even bat an eye. He's corrupt to the core, and he's willing to do anything to let that corruption breed and breed like maggots. Send me back to solitaire where the moon shines bright, where there is love in the air, where there is a coating above us in the petals when it snows and we feel like little pebbles. May it rain in solitaire. May we please go back there to solitaire. The sky is at an end. The sky is turning yellow, red paintings. They're running away and yet they're hardly panting. This is the story of an escape from cell block 701, Scorpion. Resistance is futile, they say, surrender at once. And they are surrounded, they're desperate. They are in the midst of an everlasting riot of sorts. The cruelty is fervent, the cruelty is frenetic. To burn someone with electricity to burn someone with a light bulb. They truly are giving in to the mob mentality, but why so many tears shed for Matsu? The Trojan horse of the patriarchy, the Trojan horse of doom enters. To be deceived is a woman's crime, Matsu says as another prisoner who is strung up by ropes is toasted lightly above the flames. The more you hate me, the more you can't forget me, he says when they're trapped in an elevator. When Matsu is dressed elegantly, when Matsu is destined to have a revenge, like a silk ghost coasting through the night. A little game of cat and mouse, a little game of mental math, a little game to claim your past. And there it is, there it is again. You've just had a visit from prisoner 701, female scorpion. Thank you for tuning in to Pink Midnight. We hope you have enjoyed your stay in this haunted hotel, in this abandoned palace, in this opulent field of nowhere grass.